A reading from the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, maintain justice and do what is right, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Happy is the mortal who does this, the one who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and refrains from doing any evil. Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Do not let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text is from the book of Acts, Luke's second volume, the second chapter, verses 1 through 13. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every place, from every people rather, under heaven, living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, "Hmm, they're filled with new wine. Please join me in prayer. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space those who've tuned in online. We long to hear a word from you, so we ask that you would speak it to us now. Subtly or strongly, Lord, speak to us so we may hear your word and be transformed to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. I want to begin with a question. If you know the answer, I'm giving you permission to shout it out, okay? Just so we're clear on the ground rules. What do NCR 
Truist Bank, Georgia Pacific, UPS, Equifax, Delta, Cox Enterprises, and the Coca-Cola Company all have in common. That's right. They're all headquartered in Atlanta. You know what else they all have in common? They're all younger than the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. <laughs> Last Sunday, we marked our 175th anniversary as a congregation with a meaningful and memorable uh, service of worship followed by a joy-filled uh, celebratory brunch. It was a, a historic day. And in the weeks uh, leading up to our anniversary, I spent some time reflecting on our congregation's longevity and uh, our staying power. We've been around for a long time. You, you know, the list of uh, Atlanta companies that I just uh, went through all have been around for over 100 years, which in corporate standards is, is a very, very long time. Consider a study done by uh, the McKinsey Group in 2016, which revealed that the average lifespan of a standard and poor's 500 company is just 18 years. That same McKinsey study also predicted that by 2027, 75% of the companies on the S&P 500 will have disappeared because of merger, acquisition, or bankruptcy. Of course, volumes upon volumes have been written documenting strategies and case studies and best practices to provide uh, corporations and organizations with a blueprint for solvency and longevity. Last summer, I came across an article on the uh, Forbes website detailing why companies will fail over the next 10 years. Literally, the headline was, why your company will fail over the next 10 years. That'll get your attention. And here's their list. Complacency, not prioritizing sustainability, not putting customers first, not restlessly innovating, not thinking of themselves as tech companies, not treating data as a key asset, failing to attract and, keep, and keeping talent not developing future skills, failing to build strong partnerships, and a lack of authenticity and transparency. The gist is, right, the gist is, is that if you get these things correct, your company or your organization will experience stability and in some measure, uh, permanence, longevity, staying power into the future. Now, just as there's been a lot uh, written uh, from the corporate world as to best practices for solvency and longevity, you know this to be true. There's a lot written about how we can live longer as human beings. There's a lot of material out there. There's a lot of content out there. I imagine that you have digested some along the way. Healthy diet, right? Exercise, regular medical checkups, very important for a long life, mindfulness, and cultivating a spiritual life. All of these and, and some other variables and practices and habits have been scientifically proven, statistically proven, to increase somebody's lifespan. We have the data. Even so, we're also fully aware, because we have stories, we're fully aware that you could have all those disciplines, you could have all those practices, but still be born with an undiagnosed genetic defect 
that on one morning when you're on the treadmill, you drop dead. You could have all those disciplines. You could follow the blueprint, but have been exposed to asbestos in your 20s like my father was. And you can die of lung cancer in your 40s. You, you could have all those disciplines and practices. You could follow the blueprint and you could make a routine tackle in a football game and go into cardiac arrest. You could have all those disciplines and all those practices and still be diagnosed with clinical depression or prostate or breast cancer or ALS or dementia. You know, it's, it's true in the corporate world too. I mean, you could follow a blueprint. Corporations do follow these blueprints. They do read Forbes. They read Harvard Business Review. And, and, they, and they try to get in line. And sometimes they, they, they follow it to a T and the company still close, closes. The company still fails because of market factors or things outside of their control. I begin this way because I... I am mindful, and this is a moment of transparency. I am really mindful of my own disposition to see our 175 years as a congregation and think, boy, we got it right. I mean, we must have followed the blueprint to have lasted for 175 years. Candidly, as we're thinking about this sermon series to mark our 175th anniversary, I was thinking about uh, putting together a sermon series that took a lead from that Forbes article that I was going to put out a blueprint of how a church can last 175 years. A, a church that lasts 175 years does this and doesn't do this. A church that lasts 175 years believes this and doesn't believe that. I was thinking about that. That's what I'm going to do for this sermon series, I thought. The reality is, is that there are congregations, right, that have been faithful, right? There's, there have been congregations that launch with a deep and abiding sense of call that God is calling a particular group of people to worship, study, serve, and fellowship with one another. And sometimes those congregations don't make it. In fact, only one out of five, one out of five church plants in the U.S. live beyond five years. Only one out of five. It doesn't mean that the call to start a congregation was misunderstood. It, it doesn't mean that they weren't faithful to God. But just for one reason or another, one congregation closes and another lasts for 175 years. So in the shadow of that reality, and in the shadow of our 175th, here's where I decided to go. Instead of offering a blueprint, here's where I started, decided to go, rather, uh, in this series. That the goal is not longevity. The goal is not longevity. I'm thinking about Dr. King on this, his birthday weekend, in his final sermon. Many of you remember this, when he said, like anybody, I'd like to live a long life Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now, he said. I just want to do God's will. Longevity has its place. 175 years has its place, but I want to do God's will. So this series won't answer the question, how does a congregation endure? 
Instead, this series, I hope it will respond to the question, what is God's will in this time for the congregation that has found itself enduring? That has found itself still practicing faith and life in this time. And so for this first week, I'd like to offer this, that God's will for the congregation that finds itself still enduring, still meeting, still gathering, is to proclaim the gospel through a manifold witness. To proclaim the gospel through a manifold witness. Now, many of you know this, the word gospel literally means good news. Good news. The good news is that God loves the world and that God is active in the world. And that love and that activity came in the fullness of time in and as the person of Jesus Christ. We just celebrated the incarnation. We celebrated his birth and we claim that as good news on the pages of human history. The good news is that this Jesus modeled for us what it means to be a human being. He provided for us an ethical framework from from which we might live what he called life to the full or what we moderns might call the good life. And he said that life, the good life, life to the full, is found not in power, but in sacrificial love and obedience and service and surrender to God. The same Jesus, as you know, was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. He was crucified, he died, and was buried. But the good news is that on the third day, God raised him from the dead, thus vindicating his way of being human and vindicating God's mission in the world, declaring that nothing, not even death itself, can separate us from God's love. Not only did Jesus unlock what it means to live the full life or the good life, he also unlocked for us eternal life, reconciliation with God and with God's people for all eternity. The good news is that God sent the Holy Spirit to sustain our life, that we're not alone in this world, that the Spirit nurtures us and leads us to love God, to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves. The good news is that through this sustaining power of the Holy Spirit, God sought fit to create the church as imperfect and as flawed as it is, that that God created a people to be the very body of Christ in and for the world. The good news is that all of us are invited to have a, a spiritual home, that we don't walk this journey alone. We know that we have the Spirit, but we also know that we have each other, and we need each other for this journey. We need each other, sinners and saints alike, to discern what God is doing in our midst, what God is speaking in our midst, how God is still active in the world. And this congregation, this church, this community is not just for one people, it's not just for one race, it's not just for one ethnic group, but as the prophet Isaiah declared in the text that Rob read this morning, it's gonna be a house of prayer for all nations that comes together, that seeks to reject evil, seeks to reject evil and its power in the world, that seeks to turn away from sin and seeks collectively and individually to humbly follow Jesus Christ. Our text today from Acts recounts Pentecost, and we'll hear this again after Easter. But this is the day, for those who are unfamiliar with the story, this is the day that the Holy Spirit is given by God, 
and comes over the people of God. And the people of God begin to proclaim, these are Jesus' followers, they begin to proclaim what they had seen and what they experienced in Christ. And they begin to do so miraculously by speaking languages that they don't know so that others may understand. And what happens here on that Pentecost Sunday is that they begin to show us what it means to be part of the manifold witness of the gospel. And the manifold witness of the gospel reminds us that that witness and proclamation and the way we reflect the good news in our lives and in the life of our church uh, is plural. It's diverse. It looks differently at different times. And depending on who it is individually or in a small group that's bearing witness, it will sound and it will look different. And that's the manifold witness of the gospel. We hear about that in Isaiah. We begin to, to hear a, an inkling of this, that what God is doing is bringing all of these people together to bring together a manifold witness of the gospel, of what God's doing in our lives and what God will do in the future. Our servant uh, leadership ministry team facilitated a leadership retreat this past weekend. Some of you were a part of that. Elders, ministry leaders, those who are serving in particular ministry areas. Our keynote speaker on Friday night is a man by the name of Andy Root, Dr. Andy Root. He is a practical theologian at Luther Seminary in the Twin Cities. And, and uh, Dr. Root's primary focus in his academic work is to help congregations... Uh, think about what faith formation, what leadership, and what congregational life look like in a secular age. That's, that's what he does. And so he was here to talk with us about those things. He makes the case that even though congregations in North America and in the West in general are experiencing massive decline in congregational participation, experiencing massive decline in membership, he says that the goal of the congregation as part of this manifold witness is to not try and convince people to believe in God. It's like that is not your job. That's not your job to convince people to believe in God. He said it's also not your job to try to convince people to show up. Now this one's a little harder because leaders, as leaders, we're always thinking, how can we get more people? He said, that's not your job as a congregation. It's not your job to try to figure out ways that you can, quote unquote, attract people and compete with all that's happening, youth sports and tennis and, and golf and brunch and happy hour. Look, we have a nice buffet too. <laughs> Andy encouraged us to focus our energy not trying to convince people to believe and not trying to convince people to show up, but instead to focus our energy on bearing witness to what God is doing in our lives and in the midst of our community, to bear witness to God's activity in the life of this congregation and what God is uh, doing in the life of the world. Andy contends that in a day when both belief and unbelief is fragile, and let that sink in, both belief and unbelief is fragile, People are longing to know if there's coherence, if there's a center that holds, if there's meaning, if there is purpose. Is there a God? And does this God care about us? 
It's like those who the apostles spoke to on that Pentecost day when they asked the question, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean? And that's the work of the congregation is help to discern the mysteries of the faith, to discern where God is working and active in the life of the congregation and the life of the individual. What does it mean? The congregation bears witness to what it means. And I think as we think about our 175th anniversary as a congregation, and as long as we endure, our principal call is to bear witness to that good news. The good news that God is speaking right now, even in fragile places. The good news that we know has changed our lives and has the power to change the life of the world. I, I wanna close with um, testimony. I wanna close with a little bit of, of, of witness. Many in our congregation, many of you have been praying for Ginny and Tom Munger and the Munger family. Um, they're very active in our congregation. Ginny is a, an elder currently serving on session. Her husband, Tom, is one of our ministry leaders for Global Mission. I announced from this pulpit, I think right before Thanksgiving, that they welcomed their first grandchild into the world. Their son, Alex, and his spouse, Donna, uh, became parents, and Tom and Ginny became grandparents. A few weeks ago, their son, who had the new baby, uh, Alex, he's 27 years old, he fell gravely ill. Doctors and medical professionals are still baffled by what has come over him physiologically. They're having a very hard time to figure out what has, what has happened. But Alex became so ill, so ill that, that he lives in Chattanooga that they medevaced him from a hospital in Chattanooga to a hospital in Nashville. He was so ill that his heart wasn't functioning properly and his organs weren't functioning properly. He was so ill that he had to be intubated. He was so ill that doctors told the family two Thursdays ago, the Thursday before our 175th, that he most likely wouldn't make it through the night. He wouldn't make it through the night. So when I got that text, I, I, I got in my car and I drove to Nashville and I know Tom and Ginny reached out to so many people in this church, so many people in this congregation, asking for prayer in this untenable, fragile, unimaginable moment. When I got to the hospital, uh, Tom and, and Ginny and I embraced, and then they led me back to the ICU room. Uh, Donna, Alex's wife, was hovering over his body. He was hooked up to every machine that you can possibly imagine. And we just started praying over Alex. Because what else can you do in a moment like that? We just started praying and we started reciting scripture and we were holding each other's hands and then we'd speak to Alex, telling him that we love him and that God loves him and that he's not alone and that he doesn't have to be afraid and that he can fight. And I have to tell you, God was in the room because God shows up in fragile places. God shows up in fragile belief and fragile unbelief. God shows up on the mountaintop and in the valley of the shadow of death. God shows up in ICU rooms. God shows up on the corner of 16th and Peachtree. God was there. Over the past several days, um, Tom has been uh, sending regular emails to his men's group with updates about Alex. 
Um, At the beginning of this week, Alex made what the doctors are calling, and I'm quoting one of the doctors, a miraculous recovery. Can't explain it. Don't fully understand it. But his organs started functioning again, came off of dialysis, his kidneys were functioning again, his heart was functioning again, came off sedation, came off intubation. He still has hospital delirium, but that's to be expected. And they're thinking that he even may go home to Chattanooga sometime in the next week or so. Tom laid all that out in his most recent email about two days ago. And then he said this. He said, I have experienced God in a way that I've never experienced before. And I, and I wanna tell you all about it. To his men's group. I wanna tell you all about it when I get back to Atlanta. But God has done something here that has changed me. That's manifold witness. That's the work of the congregation. That's the work of the church. That's our call to speak in such a way that bears witness to the fact that God is still speaking, that God is still showing up in the fragile, that God is still with you. Amen.